The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I think it is time to say goodnight to the Celtic myths. This is the 19th episode in the Great Myth series, the 12th one that I've devoted to the Celtic myths. I think I started doing them uh, around March or so of last year. And I realized I think I've gotten through the big stories that move me the most. I will share one more uh, with you at the end of this episode, but I think... What I've offered is a good summary, not just of uh, what seems to me the important themes, or uh, there, there's that idea of the of the uh, Chuangzu out of China, where you have uh, you don't read the whole book; you only read the uh, the heart chapters. Um, I think that I have shared something of the heart chapters the central things that might be there in the Celtic myths. Uh, but along the way, also have just made uh, a bit of my own bias in there. These are just my favorites. And I think that what I will do in the next few months, as it's getting into the fall, is get into the Norse myths. And we'll see something very interesting. The very first episode of the Norse myths will be a reading of the Voluspa, the uh, Cirrus's prophecy from the Poetic Edda. And you have there, in the very first episode that I'll do on the Norse myths, you will have something that the Celtic myths do not have at all, which is a, uh, a long uh, narrative poem, um, a concise, I should say. It's a long poem, but it's fairly concise. It's, uh, I want to say it's maybe about 200 lines, that narrates the creation of the world all the way through until the destruction, the end of the world. The Celtic myths don't quite have that, and that is one reason for them possibly being a bit scattered or seeming to be scattered. I think a lot about why the Celtic myths are that way, what we call the Celtic myths are that way, and why the Norse myths are the way that they are. And it seems that one reason is because uh, when the Norse myths were put down in writing, they were also put down in writing alongside the family sagas and the sagas of the settlements of Iceland and elsewhere. And at the time uh, that this was happening, the Norse were still in full career. They were uh, east on, in, in Russia, going down to Byzantium, and even into, did they go down to Iran, I think, maybe for a time? 
um, and they were fully on the west coast of Europe, uh, going down to Moorish Spain for a bit before they were beaten off, and North Africa, the Mediterranean, and of course Iceland, Greenland, and all the way west to Newfoundland. Uh, by the time we have the Celtic myths being written down, being uh, what you might say preserved in the best sense, the people who made those stories were not in full career anymore. There's the idea that that was a surprise to me when I finally got around to the archaeology of all this, is that you have the continental Celts, which are mainland Europe, and then you have the insular Celts, which is basically uh, the west coast, uh, western Britain, uh, Wales, and uh, Scotland, and Ireland. And I think insular is a good way to put it. At some point, by the time you got around to writing these things down, the air seems to have gone out of them. It's sort of like a uh, good Yeats poem, Yeats having learned from his Irish myths, that it's sort of a foggy dream by that point, and that is what they are recording. Whereas the Norse myths, as I said, they've uh, the battery is still charged, all the air is still in the tires. But I thought to look first at one of the one of the books that got me going on all of this. I received this book uh, on January fifth, two thousand and four, from my parents, and this is the Irish poet Thomas Kinsella, who just died last year. His translation and his uh, it's not really an abridgment, but he certainly. Uh, tried to do what he could to make it uh, readable, the uh, Tain Bolkulnia, the epic, the Irish epic, the Tain Bolkulnia, the cattle raid of Cooley. And I just wanted to share a few things that he says in the uh, introduction. This would have been my literal introduction to the topic, and it's nice to see what I highlighted back then. The first thing is that he says, um, this book is not intended as a scholarly work for which I had neither the motive nor the equipment, but as a living version of the story, leaving as few obstacles as possible between the original and the reader. And I like that he says that. I like that um, there is something between the dry scholarly version and what you might say as a, a full-blown um, sort of cheap retelling that you can think of in uh, an easy paperback that's been put together to make 99 cents on Amazon. Um, and you might say that uh, a living version of the story is what everybody else needs. It's what a podcast, you might say, needs. Certainly we need the rows and rows of Irish Tech Society volumes those green hardback volumes that look incredible all on a shelf together. But for the rest of us, um, we need a living, albeit accurate, version of these stories. And I think Kinsella was able to do that. Certainly fired my mind on these matters. The other thing is, uh, if you look uh, at the the edition of the of Kinsella's Tainbolkulnia as published by Oxford, uh, there is... Uh, brush drawings by an artist named Louis de Roquet. And 
what he says about his brush drawings, they are sort of like ink blots uh, that you can find human shapes in. They're incredible uh, drawings. And what he said about them uh, has always moved me. I, I, had, I knew hardly anything about this stuff, but this is what he says. Uh, any graphic accompaniment to a story which owes its existence to the memory and concern of a people over some 1,200 years should decently be as impersonal as possible. If these images, these marks in printer's ink, form an extension to Thomas Kinsella's Tyne, they are a humble one. It is as shadows thrown by the text that they derive their substance. And anyone who hasn't, doesn't have a copy of the book and needs another excuse to get it should get it for these, these, uh, what does he say? These marks in printer's ink that accompany the text. They're really remarkable. Um, in the next page, he mentions that uh, his edition of the Tyne, and I believe this is the case in most of uh, the, the manuscript editions, is that the cattle raid itself is prefaced by, uh, in Kinsella's version, eight other stories where you learn about uh, how the 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 bull Kulnia, the, the brown bull, um, was uh, found again, how a certain person was born, how uh, Ulstermen began to have the pangs of women in birth. Uh, there's the story of the exile of the sons of Asiliu, uh, and the early the stories of the early life of Kuhalan, as well as the quarrel of the two pig keepers, which was an early episode I did for the Celtic myths. And it's nice to see that he mentions this because uh, this, um, the ability of a large story, I'm thinking of the Mahabharata in India as being the largest example, um, but also of Homer's poems and really of anything you, can, you might be able to think of, um, what you have, I mean, this, this seems to be what myths do. As the artist says, uh, that, owes, that uh, owes its existence to the memory and concern of a people. If you have a story that owes its existence to the memory and concern of a people over some 1,200 years or even longer than that, what you will usually find is that other stories will accrue to it, will latch onto it, will grow onto it, almost as if the larger story is a magnet attracting uh, satellites uh, to it. And um, and that's nice that immediately I was made aware of those things and that habit. And the other thing that I learned immediately and that I've spent a great deal of time talking about here with the uh, Celtic myths is this. I'll just read uh, Kinsella's sentence here. He says, One of the major elements of the Tyne is its topography. Place names and their frequently fanciful meanings and origins occupy a remarkable place by modern standards. It is often enough justification for the inclusion of an incident if it ends up in the naming of some physical feature. Certain incidents indeed seem to have been invented merely to account for the place name. And um, I spent a great deal of time talking about the lore of place names through many of these stories. Um, if I could, just briefly, before I go to the last story that I was going to read here, 
I can do a sort of summary of the episodes on the Celtic myths that I've done and maybe give a hint as to why this should be the last one for a while. The first one I did was called The Dream of Angus, where the, the character Angus is uh, literally heart sick. He has a dream of this beautiful woman and he can't find her. And he goes to bed and can't get up again until someone realizes he is in love. And uh, they go searching for the woman all over Ireland. They find her. And Angus and the woman uh, fly off together as swans, if I believe that right, if I'm telling that uh, correctly. Um, so we have there the, the sort of lush uh, romanticism of these stories, um, the heartsickness of these stories that seems strange considering the uh, the violent milieu in which they were born. Um, you have Cúhollán alongside stories like this, but also the easy passage, which I think is something I mentioned in that very first episode, that the Irish myths, the Celtic myths, have between people being able to turn into animals, animals being able to turn into people. There's a great um, identification with nature to such an extent that uh, people and animals can change shapes. And that is a topic I took up in the next one, The Great Myths Number 9, The Metamorphoses of the Pig Keepers. And uh, that is the one I just mentioned as being one of the four tales of the Tyne Bolcunia, where you have these two pig keepers. Uh, many of the stories deal with, uh, if not gods, as we learned in the episode on uh, uh, where Celtic myth stands with scholarship, um, if they don't deal with gods, they deal with sort of superhuman beings, or if not that, then with kings and royalty or great warriors like Cuhullin. But in this case, it was uh, two pig keepers, two people who worked for uh, the kings and queens of the two of the provinces of Ireland, and how the two of them uh, take the stage for an entire story and have a sort of verbal battle, and then they run off together uh, and chase each other after insulting each other and change into many shapes until finally they change into the bulls themselves that become the um, that become the the subject of the Tyne bull Cunia. So there it is again the uh, the the easy uh, traffic between human and the human and the animal and the natural world as well as the ease with which uh, what you might say people on the ground have access to this kind of magic. Um, in, a, in a book that I'm working on now, uh, a sort of collection of myths um, that I'm rewriting and putting into a long sequence, the way I put it is that uh, poor people have access to this magic, to this kind of metamorphosis, this metamorphoses, this kind of change magic or this kind of cursing magic because that is the only uh, currency that they have is uh, words and what they can do with their bodies since they do not have the riches. Um, in, the great myth, in the Great Myths number 10, I dealt with the Book of Invasions, the Levolar Gavala Eren, and that is another example of a central tale that over the years, um, from whatever you want to imagine its earliest uh, 
its earliest authors to have been, just accrued a huge amount of material so that now uh, the standard English version takes up about five volumes. And to most minds, uh, especially those who know this stuff well enough, uh, it is basically unreadable. And so in that one, I read a summary of it, which goes from the creation of the world to the settlement of Ireland, and all of these invasions coming from, uh, from elsewhere into Ireland, all of these different races of giants and uh, either gods or superhumans and the people who survive them, and, and then a mixture of all of that, tying that to uh, the sons of Noah who survived the flood, and I believe uh, with the Roman material as well, and you got to see um, not only how big the balloon, how big the raft could get, but how uh, unwieldy it could become in the hands of uh, what you might say are mere scholars or mere secretaries or just uh, monks who... Uh, didn't quite have the poetic inspiration going on. In the next one, I talked about, or I read the story of how Cuchulain got his name. Cuchulain uh, means the, the, the hound. Uh, uh, and we, we learned in that story how Cuchulain just a little boy, and he is set to go off to a feast, and the men at the feast, the adult men at the feast, uh, lock the gate basically, and uh, when and they put the guard dog out, and when Kuhalan comes down the road, basically playing catch with himself, uh, he ends up killing the dog, and so he becomes the new guard dog, and that you might say is another uh, more violent kind of metamorphosis. He becomes the hound by killing it, not by transforming himself into it but by killing it and replacing it. In the next one, we heard the story of Queen Maeve of Connaught, and she figures greatly in the Tynebol Cúlnian and other stories as well. And I read from that one in part because there aren't uh, the great goddesses, there aren't a lot of large uh, female figures in the myths, and so I thought that was a good one to read from how it is the, the pillow talk between Queen Maeve and her husband Ailil that gets the Tynebul Kulnia going, um, where, they, where they're lying together at night comparing all the things that they own because her husband says, look at all the rich things I've given you. And suddenly, within a few pages, they've gone through an entire inventory of everything they have. And... You also see in Queen Maeve uh, someone who can seduce whoever she'd like and all the rest of it. And it's nice to see that she isn't uh, judged for any of that. Uh, she is seen as a, uh, a power unto herself, which is wonderful. And I think I mentioned in that the, the other character, the other female character that shows up in the Tynebul Kulnia is the, the Morrigan the uh, woman who turns herself into a raven, and I think who tries to keep Kuhalan from succeeding by blocking up rivers or destroying bridges, something of that sort. In The Great Myths number 13, we did uh, the travels of Oshin, 
Into the Other World. And this was a story that um, probably isn't quite as old as the others I shared here, but that were taken up by poets and finally by Yeats himself in a retelling that he did uh, very early in his life. And this is another um, sort of heartsick kind of romantic uh, uh, foggy and uh, heart palpitating kind of story that you're surprised to hear in this kind of tradition. But it also talks about the relationship of people with the other world and with time, uh, where you have the idea of Oshin leaving everything he has in this world to go into the other world. And he is told when he gets tired, you might say, of the affair that he is having there. Um, if you really want to go home again, you can, but don't uh, let your feet touch the ground when you get there. And of course, when he goes back home, what does he find? He discovers that while only a few years has passed for him, something like 200 years has passed uh, in the regular world. And what was it? Something, uh, something falls from his hands or someone tries to hand him something and it falls to the ground. And uh, without thinking about it, he tries to grab it. He falls off his horse and uh, he just becomes a pile of dust right there. Uh, a great story about the temptations, you might say, um, in, a, in a religious context, perhaps of the mystical experience, perhaps uh, what happens when you lean towards those religious traditions that want to tell you to escape the world. Um, it could be a, a, uh, a call to danger simply of hedonism, of forgetting the world in that way. And aside from that, it's just a great imaginative story, it seems to me. In The Great Myths number 14, we did the destruction of Daderga's hostel, which I think I said was the equivalent of uh, of a Faulkner novel uh, compressed into about 30 pages. Um, and also, I think, maybe the closest the Celtic myths get to the sort of doom-laden fate that the Norse myths are also drenched with, where you have this king who is descended from a race of birds. That's another, uh, another bit of their identification with animals. And he is told, he is given a series of what are called, I believe it's geises, uh, taboos that he is not supposed to, um, he is not supposed to step over, he is not supposed to commit these strange acts. They seem completely random. Um, and it turns out that one night while he is riding to someone's hostel, to someone's large house, to someone's banqueting hall, that uh, as he's going there and as he arrives and as they all set up and as a group of invaders are coming to find him, it turns out that this, uh, that this king uh, um, transgresses all of these taboos within one night, and by the end of it, uh, the, the invaders have come, and uh, the invaders are repulsed, I believe. They are defeated in the end, but the king is killed. And the last image we have, or one of the most memorable images we have, is of the severed head of the king asking one of his retainers for something to drink. 
And there's a long passage of this retainer going all throughout Ireland looking for some water for the king. And he brings it to him just before he dies. And that brings in uh, something that will happen that happens in Cúhollán and a great deal of these other myths. And that is the idea that medieval Ireland, whatever imaginative fancy we have in stories like Oshin and the Other World, uh, medieval Ireland was a place that was sort of uh, ruled almost by small gangs that were headed up by powerful men. And you think of the people who were invading in the story of the destruction of Dederga's hostel, and you think of the king himself um, and the people that he was sort of barricaded in this burning house with as well. Uh, these young men with a lot of energy and not much to do, constantly warring on themselves. And you wonder how much of that also plays into the cattle raid stories as well. And it also plays into the great myths number 15, which is the great love story of the Celtic myths, the pursuit of Diarmid and Granny. And in that one, uh, the great crime, not only is that uh, Diarmid, a young man who is part of a gang, you might say, uh, that uh, is around uh, the leader Finn McCool. Not only does he run off with uh, Finn McCool's wife, but his wife is the one who instigates it. She doesn't want to marry this old man. And in this story, you find the lore of place names to the full as well, where, it, where this couple is on the run, and wherever they stop, it becomes a place that is called Yermut and Granny's Bed. When my wife and I were in Cornwall about 10 years ago, uh, this story, of course, also occurs with uh, Tristan and Isolt, and you found the same idea there as well. And within that kind of tradition, you also find that as, this, as these stories, in this case a love story, goes from place to place and is retold and retold, uh, certain areas, certain, if you're thinking of uh, in United States terms, you might say a state or a county, um, inherits a version of this story and makes it their own so that so much so that they can say that that hill out there or that standing stone out there is also uh, one of the beds of Diarmut and Granny. You see how these beloved stories live in part by being appropriated by the people who end up becoming attached to them and retell them. And then in the great myth number 16, we did the story of Taliesin, which is, to my mind, you have this, the, the childhood of Kuhalan, which is wonderful. But to my mind, the great childhood story in uh, the Celtic myths is the story of Taliesin, the story of this child, poet, prophet, and seer who goes to the court of a king that's described lavishly and where all these uh, court poets and court seers and court prophets are, and he bests all of them, and he is just a child. And that goes into that wonderful thing that you find all throughout myths of the where the child where the unlettered, the supposedly unlettered and youthful person uh, comes in like a bolt of lightning to upend 
the staid and dry bureaucracy that is now surrounding the, uh, the royal courts. But it also includes uh, a nice bit of uh, childhood rivalry and many other things as well. Um, it's a, uh, a really wonderful extended story about poetry and prophecy and what it means to a people and how you ought not let uh, the story, or not the story, the, the kind of energy and creativity that these stories come from, you shouldn't let them, you might say, uh, get locked up in only five major publishing houses. Uh, you shouldn't let them get locked up only in the universities. You shouldn't let them get locked up only under the hands of uh, gatekeepers or mere scholars. Uh, at some point, someone has to come in to blow all of that up, and Taliesin does that very well. And finally, or not finally, uh, almost finally, in The Great Mist Number 17, we went through the tales of the elders of Ireland, sometimes called the Colloquy of the Elders, which I think I said in that episode is the Celtic equivalent of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, not for its subject matter, but just for uh, its density, for being about 200 pages, but being a well-packed 200 pages, and where you have the lore of place names um, just uh, on steroids, where you have where you have the old uh, warriors of Finn Macool, the few of them who are still alive, going around Ireland with St. Patrick and using the place names, as Thomas Kinsella said, using the place names as an excuse to tell the stories behind them and, and taken uh, as an accumulation, you have a sort of goodbye, a sort of love letter to a Irish society or an, an imaginative Irish society that Christianity has done away with. And in the same way, um, I think as I mentioned there many times, you also have this strange sense that I've never really come across anywhere else of why it is that a conquering culture, especially uh, a conquering religious culture like Christianity, which is so different from the paganism that Ireland would have had, why they would have had such, or why they would have allowed, let alone had, let alone expressed uh, out in the open, why they would have had such affection for these old stories and for these old gods or superhumans or whatever you want to call them, uh, to the point where they wanted to preserve the stories, to the point where they would uh, yes, they want to give St. Patrick the in to say, um, if you don't uh, stop doing these things, you're going to go to hell, or where he has his exorcism scenes of uh, getting the demons out of the old pagans. But in the remaining 199 pages, um, there's a real interest and a real sadness of this passing culture, and it's really very beautifully done. And it is one of the uh, I, want, I want to say clearest, since very little of it is clear, it is one of the most uh, complete examples we have of descriptions, early descriptions, this is 12th, 11th or 12th century, I believe, 
descriptions of the Irish other world, the people who lived under the mounds or in the mounds um, that later became the fairy mounds uh, of Yeats. Um, and that is a wonderful thing to see as well. And finally, the last one I did, which I think was last month or the month before, was the Great Myths number 18, Celtic Myth and Scholarship. And that is where we went through Mark Williams' recent book, uh, Ireland's Immortals, to see what it was, where it was that scholarship uh, places a lot of this. And I won't go over everything we learned there. I think it would just be worth going to listen to it again. But the, the gist of it was is that none of this none of these stories are are pure there is no uh um pure link back to a a a quote unquote only pagan ireland all of it everything that we have that we call celtic myths or irish myths in this sense um all of it has been you might say uh poured through the poured through the screen of Christian interpreters and uh, uh, monks and Christian scribes who do what they will with the stories. And as I said then, I don't think that's a reason not to study this stuff. Um, nothing is pure. Everything has been transmitted strangely or off or uh, through the bias of someone else's lens. And just because it's just because there's no way of getting around that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to adore these stories and study them however it is uh, that we can and with that yeah I think we got enough time here and with that I hope that that gave a quick summary of many of the things that have moved me about these stories and how they all sort of interlink, if you'd like them to. Um, and what I'm going to read from now is a scene from the Tynebul Kulnia of Thomas Kinsella. And it is a scene uh, uh, in the many duels that Cúhalan has. He finally has a fight to the death with an old friend of his named uh, Ferdia. And... I'll mention this one more time. James MacKillop's Dictionary of Irish Mythology. James, M-A-C-K-I-L-L-O-P. This is the, the reference book for the Celtic myths, at least for me. And it's the starting point for basically everything I've done uh, outside of reading translations of the stories themselves. And as he says, the man named Ferdia is a friend and sworn brother of Cúhalan, who is convinced by Queen Maeve to fight against Cúhalan in the war for the Brown Bull in the Tyne Bull Cúlnia, the Don Cúlnia, the Brown Bull. Uh, according to several texts, the two men had been closely bound to one another since they were giving military training together by the Amazonian woman named Scathach on the island of Skye. Even after his beguiling by Maeve, who promises him her daughter, among other things, Ferdiad is hesitant, hesitant to fight Cúhalan until he is driven to anger by the jibes and insults of Laeg, Cúhalan's charioteur. And this is a really moving scene. This is something that, that got me going so much that 
I included a great deal of it in my Civil War poem called To the House of the Sun. And this is about two friends who are on opposite sides of a civil war, basically, and uh, how it is that they are unable to resolve their differences. And we'll just skip around here and because uh, the whole scene is probably about 30 or 40 pages, but I'll only read bits and pieces of it. Um, there's a long prologue, but finally they do, uh, they do meet. Uh, they met in the middle of the ford, not long after that, and Feridia said to Cohollan, You are welcome, Cohollan. I could trust your welcome once, Cohollan said, but I don't trust it now anyway, he said. It is for me and not you, Feridia, to bid welcome. This is my homeland. You are the intruder. You can see how this would work in a Civil War context. This is my homeland, and you are the intruder, and you are wrong to challenge me to combat. It would suit me better to challenge you. You have driven out our women and young men and boys, and our troops of horses, our herds and our flocks, and all our goods. And Ferdia says, Enough, Cuchulain. What brings you at all to meet me at this warlike combat? When we were with Skathach and Uathach and Eif, you were only my body servant, who fixed my spears and made my bed. There's that... Uh, that fosterage of children into a group of men uh, that was common in medieval Ireland. Um, that is true, Cuchulain said, but I did it then because I was young and small. You can't call me that now. There isn't a warrior in the world now that I am not able for. And then each bitterly reproached the other, and they broke off their friendship, and Feridia chanted with Cuchulain, and Feridia chanted with Cuchulain answering. And these prose bits are broken up by their, their poems that they say to each other. Uh, Feridia says, What brings you here, squinter, to try my strength? Through the steam of your horses I'll reach and redden you. You'll regret that you came. You are a fire without fuel. You'll need plenty of help if you ever see home. And Cuchulain says, Like a great boar before his herd, I'll overwhelm you before these armies. I'll push you and punish you to the last of your skill, and then bring you down, havoc on your head. And Feridia says, It is I who will kill, I who will destroy, I who will drive, Ulster's hero to flight before all eyes. By my doing, they'll rue their loss early and late. And Cuchulain says, Must we fight, must we start our fight, groaning over corpses? Come what may, let us enter the ford to meet death before the hosts with bloody spear blade or the savage sword if our time has come. And Feridia says, Attack then, if we must. Before sunset and nightfall, I will fight you at Barcha in bloody battle. Men of Ulster will cry out, Death has seized you. The terrible sight will pierce them through. And Cuchulain says, You have reached your doom your hour is come, my sword will slash and not softly. When we meet, you will fall at a hero's hands. Never again will you lead men. And Feridia says, Little Bush, you have boasted and threatened enough. You'll find no mercy or victory here. I know you well, a clumsy and feeble, chicken-hearted, trembling boy. And Cuchulain says, While we stayed with Skathach, we went as one. 
with a common courage into the fight. My bosom friend and heart's blood, dear above all, I am going to miss you. And Feridia says, you make much of yourself, but the fight is to come. I'll have spiked your head when the cock crows. Cuhalan of Coulange, or Cuhalan of Cunha, has lost his wits and will suffer for it. The guilt is yours. And a page later, Cuhalan simply says, Don't break our friendship and our bond. Don't break the oath we made once. Don't break our promise and our pledge. Noble warrior, do not come. And you can see how this is this is a mixture of uh, chest pounding. These are dudes uh, bragging, trying to bring each other down. But at the same time, I think almost in the sense of uh, the kind of male affection and male bonding that Tolkien was able to build into the Lord of the Rings, this is real affection and real friendship as well. Uh, my bosom friend and heart's blood, dear above all, I am going to miss you. Um, while these were, you might say, the action movies of their times, um, they aren't without a heart or uh, pathos, you might say. A few pages later, this is after they have uh, fought for a day. There are wonderful descriptions of how it is that they fight, and I do read another one in a moment. But this is what happens after they're done fighting for the day. It says they broke off and flung their weapons into their charioteer's arms. They each have a charioteer. Uh, they came up to each other, and each put his arm round the other's neck and gave him three kisses. Their horses passed that night in the same paddock and their charioteers by the same fire. Their charioteers made up fresh beds of rushes for them with rests for their heads, as is right for wounded men. Men of healing and medicine came to heal them and make them whole and dropped wholesome healing plants and herbs into their stabs and cuts and gashes and countless wounds. As many wholesome healing plants and herbs as were put on Cuhalan's stabs and cuts and gashes and countless wounds, he sent the same over to Ferdia on the westward side of the ford, so that the men of Ireland couldn't say, if he killed Ferdia, that he had won because he got more care. Ferdia, meanwhile, out of all the food and the health-giving, all the stimulating, delicious drinks that the men of Ireland gave him, he sent an equal share over to Cahollin on the northward side of the ford, for there were more supplying Ferdia with food than were supplying Cahollin. All the men of Ireland were supplying Ferdia because he was protecting them from Cahollin, while only the people of Breg Plain were supplying Cahollin. And that's a nice bit there, too. Uh, they're still uh, taking care of each other. And about ten pages later, I'll just read some of my favorite parts here from uh, from the poems. Actually, where is the description of one of their fights? Yes, I'll do this first. Um, this is uh, this is actually the fight that uh, prompts all that healing. Let me read this. This is worth doing. Um, 
And for those who haven't read much about Cuchulain, he is able to go into what uh, Thomas Kinsella translates as fury spasms. He's able to take on these weird shapes. Maybe that's another version of his metamorphoses. Um, when he sort of goes into his battle fury, maybe that is another Norse thing as well, or maybe they, they sort of got that from each other. Uh, it says, At that, Cuchulain rose up for the third time, quick as the wind, swift as a swallow, in a storm of strength and dragonish fury, and landed on the knob of Ferdia's shield, and tried to strike down at him over the shield rim. But that battle warrior gave a shake of his head that sent Cuchulain off, as though he had never landed on it, into the middle of the ford. Cuchulain warped in his fury spasm. He blew up and swelled like a bladder full of breath, and bent himself in a fearful hideous arch, mottled and terrifying, and the huge high hero loomed straight up over Ferdia, vast as a Fomorian giant or a man from the Sea Kingdom. You'll have to listen to the episode on uh, um, on the invasions of Ireland to remember who the Fomorian giants are. <laughs> um, it says, uh, Then they fought each other, then they fought together so closely that their heads touched at the top and their feet at the bottom and their hands in the middle around the legs and knobs of their shields. So closely they fought that their shields split and burst from rimmed belly. So closely they fought that their spears bent and collapsed, worn out from the tips to the rivets. So closely they fought that their shield rims and sword hilts and spear shafts screamed like demons and devils and goblins of the glen and fiends of the air. So closely they fought that they drove the river off its course and out of its bed, leaving a dry space in the middle of the ford big enough for the last royal burial ground of a king or a queen, not a drop of water on it, except what the two heroes and high warriors splashed there in their trampling and slithering in the ford. So closely they fought that the horses of the men of Ireland broke loose in panic and terror, rearing and raving, and broke their shackle hoops and hobbles and reins and ropes, so that the women and children, the infants, the ill, and the imbeciles, broke out southwestward from the camp of the men of Ireland. And uh, you might say, uh, Cormac McCarthy, eat your heart out. That is, uh, I wish I could end the episode with that. Um, wonderful descriptions of uh, warfare and the intimacy of warfare and the supernatural elements that are getting involved with this warfare. Um, I'm, think I'm thinking of how their heads touched at the top and their feet at the bottom and their hands in the middle. I think of Walt Whitman's line where uh, he finally gets together with the guy he loves and you're reaching for my feet and you're reaching for my beard. Um, there are these wonderful feats of uh, athletics going on during this battle. And I'll just close here with um, some of my favorite bits over the years, just to give you an idea. Uh, I think I've gone through this uh, four or five times, and I have dated each of them 
uh, red ink 2004, pink ink 2005, blue ink 2010, and black ink from 2011. Um, red in Ohio, California, and, and my wife and I were living in Brooklyn. And so this book is covered with different uh, highlights and different inks and different colors. And I will just read from the last few pages of their battle uh, the parts that have always uh, struck me. And this is Kuhalan again, talking about how sad it is that this is happening at all. He says, Ill met, Ferdia, like this, you, crimson and pale in my sight, stretched in a bed of blood, and I with my weapon unwiped. When, we're, when we were beyond the sea, Scathach and Uathach's pupils, who thought of such pale lips or a weapon struggle between us? Kuhalan, I suppose, is, is in, if you can get into the psychology of Kuhalan at all, he is in the position of someone who knows that he is probably unbeatable. And so he has the, the distance, you might say, that keeps him from fear and simply allows himself uh, to unload himself of pity and sadness, which is perhaps not an unhealthy thing for a warrior. And it, they always go back to their childhood, even then, um, even in medieval Ireland, even in that brutal world, they go back to their childhood and their childhood training. Uh, later on, Cúhalan says, Sad and pitiful the day that saw Ferdia's strength spent and brought the downfall of a friend. I poured him a drink of red blood. If you had met your death then, fighting with Greek warriors, I wouldn't have outlasted you. I would have died at your side. And the end of this particular speech says, bravery is battle madness. And that can be taken in many ways um, as to what battle madness might mean. Uh, and Kuhalan finally says this last speech. It was all play, all sport, because Kuhalan has already dueled with many men by this point. It was all play, all sport, until Ferdia came to the ford. A like learning we both had, the same rights, the same belongings, the same good foster mother, her whose name is most honored. All play, all sport, until Ferdia came to the ford. We had the same force and fury, and the same feats of war. Scathach awarded two shields, one to me, one to Ferdia. All play, all sport, until Ferdia came to the ford. Misery, a pillar of gold, I have leveled in the ford. The bull of the tribe herd, braver than any man. All play, all sport, until Ferdia came to the ford. Fiery and ferocious lion, fatal, furious flood wave. And you thank Thomas Kinsella, a great poet, being able to do this translation. All play, all sport, until Ferdia came to the ford. Fiery and ferocious lion, fatal, furious flood wave. Thank you to the memory of Thomas Kinsella. He says, all play, all sport, until Ferdia came to the ford. I thought, beloved Ferdia, would live forever after me. Yesterday, a mountain slope. Today, only a shade. I have slaughtered on this tyne 
three countless multitudes, choice cattle, choice men, choice horses, fallen everywhere. The army, a huge multitude that came from cruel Krochen, has lost between a half and a third, slaughtered in my savage sport. Never came to the battlefield, nor did Banba's belly bear, nor oversee or land came, a king's son of fairer fame. And for good or ill, uh, for better or worse, that is where I will leave the Celtic myths. I hope especially, so I didn't do very much of the battle stuff in the other 11 episodes, I hope you can see that even in the martial stuff, even in the chest-pounding stuff, even where uh, there could be a sort of cliché of what battle or victory might be, that even here um, there's something else, there's something stranger, there's something more moving going on. And I hope that these 12 episodes on the Celtic myths were worthwhile and that they will lead people who have already gotten into these stories into getting into them again. And But most of all, I think of myself back in January of 2004 getting Thomas Kinsella's Tyne Volkulnia in the mail and getting Jeffrey Gantz's book, Early Irish Myths and Sagas. Is that right? Um, I want to get it right because that's the other book that meant so much to me then. Um, let me just see. Early Irish Myths and Sagas by, yes, Jeffrey Gantz, Penguin Classics. Um, Patrick Ford's uh, Mabinogi, translation of the Mabinogi. The uh, uh, Tom Rowe and, I believe, uh, Alice Dooley, uh, Tales of the Elders of Ireland, those three books. Um, I think of myself back then, and I hope that uh, if podcasts had been big back then, that if I had stumbled on these 12 episodes, that I would have been able to help myself along well enough with these episodes. Um, and with that, I will leave you, and when we next meet for the great myths, we will be getting into the Norse stuff. Full tilt. Thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.